Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, it's March 18th, which means it's one day after St. Patrick's Day. Uh, first of all, happy St. Patrick's Day to you as uh, someone of Irish descent. How did you celebrate the grand occasion? Um, it was oh, First, I actually had a really nice time. friend of mine, I, I myself don't usually make a big deal out of it, but a friend of mine went all out, did the corned beef and cabbage and mixed vegetables, and we got the Guinness. So we just, Greg, we lived up to the stereotype, and it was absolutely joyous. Um, so this is yeah, this is St. Patrick's Day. This is also known amongst many Irish Americans as um, Hangover Day, and uh, we're we're a little slow moving this morning, but that's okay because everyone else in the country who didn't uh, enjoy themselves to excess on St. Patrick's Day is still going to spend the first couple of days of this week filling out their brackets. <laughs> that's right. That's certainly how I this plan. This is a to bad start. week for the national productivity. You just <laughs> see the GDP go down. Yes, yes. And I, I, we didn't do it this year, Jim, but we've talked about this in the past. Uh, hopefully, uh, a lot of folks had the uh, opportunity to watch the official St. Patrick's Day movie, which, of course, is The Fugitive. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. As I said yesterday, I hope everyone could enjoy enjoy a drink, enjoy some corned beef and uh, uh, escape Samuel Gerard. Yes. So, you know. Exactly, which is exactly uh, how we use St. Patrick's Day. But uh, uh, I don't want to spoil a movie that's 26 years old. Uh, Jim, let's move on to our good martini now here. Uh, we go to the Washington Post. Michael Bennett is a Democratic senator from the state of Colorado. He's most notable for having only one T at the end of his name. And he's yet another Democrat who's likely to run for president, although he hasn't officially said so yet. Uh, a little while back, he had an interview with James Homan of the Post. The interview was conducted with the Colorado senator while both were in New Hampshire. Uh, and the issue of packing the Supreme Court came up. It's an idea that a number of Democrats think is a really good idea since it, they think the conservatives have the edge now. But here's the story. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado slammed his head on the table four times when I asked what he thought about other Democratic presidential contenders embracing the idea of expanding the Supreme Court. Quote, having seen up close just how cynical and how vicious the Tea Party guys and the Freedom Caucus guys and Mitch McConnell have been, the last thing I want to do is be those guys, he said during an interview at a coffee shop here the Friday before last. Quote, what I want to do is beat those guys so that we can begin to govern again. Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, suggested that morning during a speech in Manchester, which coincided with Bennett's first foray to the state, that the number of justices should grow from nine to 15, with Republicans picking five, Democrats picking five, and those 10 justices together agreeing on the rest. Bennett, quote, I can understand Mayor Pete's frustration because he's a mayor. He comes to this with the purest intentions a person could have. I'm not sure if he spent a couple months in Washington that he'd have the same point of view. But Buttigieg is far from alone. Even some of Bennett's Senate colleagues have rushed to endorse the latest litmus test from the far left. Senators Harris, Warren, and Gillibrand express varying degrees of openness to the concept of changing the composition of the court to benefit liberals, and now O'Rourke is doing so as well. Senators Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, however, each express skepticism about the very idea that famously derailed Franklin Roosevelt's second term. So this is kind of becoming a litmus test for just how much of a true progressive you are, Jim. So I don't know if Senator Bennett plans to get in this thing or not. Sounds like he probably will. But the fact that he's not going completely nut job on us here probably means he's got a really bad chance of winning his party's nomination. 
Yeah, uh, but you know, I, I you know, I still want to give a little bit of an attaboy to Michael Bennett anyway. Yes. Uh, just in the sense that we, we need more Democrats who will do this sort of who will stand up for this. Um, this fascinating interview. He talks about standing up when Trump said. Uh, during the State of the Union, Trump says we will not be a socialist country. He says he's the first Democrat to stand up and applaud. And unbeknownst to him, that's when you know Bernie Sanders is scowling behind him. And Bennett has enough good sense to recognize this is a bad thing both for the Democratic Party if they want to beat Trump in 2020, and I think a bad thing for the country. And, and you know, there's a certain large swaths of that interview um, where he's making the argument about the need for the Constitution and respect for norms, and he says. Uh, uh, that's what these mechanisms are for. And quote, we're in the process of breaking all of those mechanisms. We should think long and hard about whether we want to destroy all that, whether we think that we should live in a world where they have their version of one party rule for a while. And then we substitute it with our version of one party rule. To me, that seems like a really bad answer. Greg, can you think of anything that would be more likely to doom you in a Democratic primary? <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, this is spectacularly you know, not what the Democratic base wants to hear and good for him. You know, and look, maybe there are enough people in the party who, who don't like this, um, who recognize the dangers of this, who recognize that uh, this has turned into not just a race for the left, but, you know, who can make the biggest, wildest, boldest promise of that sort of thing. Um, the, the anecdote about him, his head going down when he just, you know, hears about the court packing or, or, you know, sudden sweeping overhauls to the nature of the Supreme Court. I think Michael Bennett is probably going nowhere. I think it's very interesting in the interview. He, he kind of loosely acknowledges the fact that um, the governor of Colorado, the recently departed governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, is also running. And he says, oh, you know, it's not going to be an issue if the two of us uh, are running. We're, you know, we're two very different people and, and you know. Holman kind of says, well, actually, you're, you're kind of taking the same <laughs> temperamentally, ideologically, geographically. You're, you're actually uh, very similar. But uh, we'll say, look, any, you know, maybe we're seeing the little bit of antibodies within the Democratic Party start to kick in and recognize um, this mentality that's on the left right now is, is one, going to cost the 2020 election, but two, the vision of reparations, green, total government control of the economy for Green New Deal, open embrace of socialism, demonization of Israel, and, you know, some, in some cases, overt anti-Semitism. Look, that, that's not just not your father's Democratic Party. That's not America. That's just, you know, that, that's a completely different country. Uh, and it's just reassuring to see that Bennett is as, you know, recoiling from that as much as we are. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I mean, it's some people think that this is just designed to bait Trump into basically saying, hey, good idea. I'm going to add five justices right now. And then he looks like the crazy one. Uh, or else uh, they really do think this. Um, and given where the Democrats are on the issues you just mentioned with the Green New Deal and elsewhere, reparations is now another one that's uh, entered into the debate. Maybe they are serious about this, which is absolutely ludicrous. So it's worth noting that there's, and, and this is kind of a, a foreshadowing one of our future martinis here. So over the weekend, the attitude was, wow, what a terrible rollout for Beto O'Rourke. By the way, it, it's Beto. It, it's, it's, not, uh, it's, it's not Beto. Uh, so apparently I've been mispronouncing it the whole time. But anyway, Beto has been, uh, had, you know, oh, maybe Beto's not going to be the, the flavor of the month. Maybe he stumbled. Maybe he missed his moment. Uh, and then he raised $6.1 million on his first day. So the perception of what Democrats want and are talking about on the, in the Twitter class, shall we say, can sometimes be wrong. Uh, and so we'll have to see, you know, once people actually start polling and everybody see, we everybody see them on a debate stage, maybe the Democrats will be more sane than we expect, Greg. But um, wouldn't count on it.
Yeah. I call him Beta. I know it's Beto now, but I can't think of anyone who's uh, more non-alpha than O'Rourke because every <laughs> accomplishment in his life is he chalks up to white privilege, so he'll be Beta. Yeah, if, if this was his name, if he came across the character with this name in a, in a novel, you'd be like, all right, author, come on. <laughs> That's a little on the nose, don't you think? All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And this takes off from our bad martini, which led off the podcast on Friday. And that, of course, was the horrific massacre at the mosques in New Zealand. And now a total of 50 dead and others still uh, fighting for their lives and uh, hopefully recovering from their injuries. As a result, the gun debate in this country has once again intensified. And uh, a number of different political figures are commenting with arguments we've certainly heard about and talked about here before. Uh, but they're worth addressing again because that needs to be confronted. So you get first of all, you got Joe Scarborough, who could not have been more pro-gun when he was elected to the House of Representatives in 1994, but now he's been hanging out with MSNBC for a lot of years, and well, uh, he's gotten pretty far left on this issue. He tweeted out uh, a series of things. First of all, about how the AR-15 actually was designed as a weapon of war, and then he tweets out as a longtime gun owner and supporter of the Second Amendment. And you always got to be wary when it starts with that. I, I agreed with the Supreme Court's Heller decision upholding that concluded that Americans had the right to keep and bear arms. But that constitutional protection did not and will not extend to guns designed as weapons of war. Uh, Chris Murphy, Connecticut senator, who's uh, very much on the front lines of this issue, quote, nobody needs an AR-15 to hunt. Nobody needs a semi-automatic rifle to defend their home. But mass shooters need these weapons in order to murder as many people as efficiently as possible. And so nobody will miss them when they are illegal, except for the killers. Ah, but then we have Mr. Nuance, O'Rourke himself, speaking about this issue. Here's what he said. Now, if you own an AR-15, keep it. Continue to use it responsibly and safely. I just don't think that we need to sell any more weapons of war into this public. Into this public. So, uh, Jim, when the founders put together the Second Amendment... um, Congress shall make no law infringing the right to keep and bear arms. Um, I'm pretty sure there's not a clause in there uh, unless you don't need it to hunt. So uh, you don't need it is, is not really a factor here. I have the right to have one. Look, you know, from many years of conversations with my buddy Cam Edwards and appearing on NRA TV, when somebody starts talking about the Second Amendment and the word hunt comes out of their mouth, <laughs> generally it's a sign you're dealing with someone who's not really a supporter of the Second Amendment because as, as many people would there's no hunt. The word hunt isn't in there, right? This wasn't like, you know, well, people should have them for, you know. Ultimately, when somebody starts talking about hunting in the context of the Second Amendment, it basically means like, look, long guns with brown barrels are not scary, but guns that are all black are very scary. And therefore, uh, those kinds should not be permitted. But the long ones that I'm used to seeing in Westerns, those are fine because I'm used to seeing them in Westerns. I'm thinking of uh, Joe Biden's infamous, just blast your shotgun out the window if you think there's an intruder advice that he gave a couple of years ago. As my colleague Kevin Williamson likes to point out, if you really want to kill somebody, a hunting rifle will do just fine. Um, they're actually much larger and much more powerful shots, long barrels, greater velocity, greater momentum, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, people who are like, no, 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 the long hunting rifles are fine. It's those other guns that are dangerous generally don't really know much about what they're talking about. Uh, I'm going to refer to, to Stephen Gutowski, who's another one of my good gun guys who knows this stuff backwards and forwards in better detail than I can explain. But he points out. Actually, before we go any further, let me just observe, Greg. So the argument from Beta O'Rourke is that the AR-15 is so dangerous we can't make any more, but it's so safe. Everyone who currently has one can keep one. That's right. 
at the same time. <laughs> I, I think it's exactly, if it's really so dangerous, we can't make any more then you probably wouldn't want lots and lots of people having this in their homes. And the flip side, if you're comfortable with pe- lots and lots of people having this in their homes, I don't understand why you'd want to ban it. Kind of core to this argument is if you're going to talk about what kind of guns should be banned and what shouldn't be banned, you should know the difference between semi-automatic and fully automatic. Fully automatics are pretty much illegal with exception of a very small handful that were grandfathered in when they changed the law back in the early 80s. They're exceptionally rare. I got to shoot one of them at the NRA range a couple of years ago. You're not seeing fully automatic weapons being used in most crimes or even in most shooting sprees. So then the question is, well, I guess you don't want to have semi-automatic. And people say, well, we should ban semi-automatic weapons. Well, the vast majority of firearms are semi-automatic. Then the argument about, oh, the AR-15, why it's practically a, it's practically a weapon of war. We, we actually, guys, a lot of guys have 45s as sidearms in war. Um, the 45 handgun is not, uh, you know, we, we use these very imprecise terms. And once you have to write a law, you have to actually, you know, specify what kind of guns would be banned and which ones wouldn't. And you got to get into technical language. There's this, you know, this eye rolling griping about gunsplaining. When, when somebody says, look, I just, I just want the shootings to stop. We should just ban these kinds of guns. And you point out the details. Stop gunsplaining to me, which is basically stop demonstrating that you know more about the law in this area. I'm trying to emote here. Stop interrupting me when I'm emoting. But at some point, if you really want to put laws together, you have to specify which kind of guns would be gone. And this is why when they do stuff like the Brady Bill and various other gun control, a lot of these arguments they're making, they're generally cosmetic. I believe under the assault weapons ban, there are like five different accoutrements you could have and you could only have two of them on them and the length of the barrel. None of these really do very much to A, fight crime or B, fight mass shootings. But then again, that's really kind of the point. The point is to look like you're doing something in response to a tragedy like New Zealand instead of, you know, actually focusing on what uh, what prompted it, what caused it and, uh, you know, what actually would prevent something like this happening. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this one also deals with New Zealand. If you were to ask a rational person who's been following this story to any degree, you would say, who's responsible for this massacre? And most sane people would say, the person who shot all those people. But not to some on the left. Chelsea Clinton apparently is uh, to blame for this because of a tweet. Among other people, I'm sure. Uh, Jim, I'm going to quote directly from you and the Morning Jolt today. Chelsea Clinton attended a vigil for the victims of the New Zealand mosque massacre on Friday night. And New York University students Rose Asaf and Lean Dweek, or Dweek maybe, uh, confronted her. Quote, this right here is the result of a massacre stoked by people like you and the words that you put out into the world, one of the students told Clinton. I want you to know that, and I want you to feel that deep down inside. Forty-nine people died because of the rhetoric you put out there. The argument is that because back on February 10th, after Congresswoman Ilhan Omar contended that APAC money controlled the views of members of Congress, Chelsea Clinton tweeted, quote, co-signed as an American, we should expect all elected officials, regardless of party and all public figures, to not traffic in anti-Semitism. And because of that, the New Zealand massacre occurred. This is the Manhattan Project of Guilt by Association. So, Jim, regular listeners will know that we are not exactly um, soft (laughs) when it comes to criticism of Chelsea Clinton. We're uh, more than happy to point out uh, different aspects of uh, how she gets favorable treatment from the media. They still treat her like she's 15 when she's pushing 40. But uh, the idea of blaming Chelsea Clinton because she denounced anti-Semitism a few weeks back for the mosque massacre literally on the other side of the world is about as stupid as it gets. 
Yeah, uh, there are a lot of words I could use to describe this, Greg, but I won't because we're a family podcast. Uh, my colleague Jonah is a fan of the phrase nonsense on stilts. And I think what I like is it's not just nonsense. It's nonsense <laughs> that somehow managed to get up onto stilts. So it's like it's like higher nonsense. It's elevated nonsense. So look, at the heart of this and, and this, uh, this the choice to confront Chelsea, and of course they've got the cell phone camera running the whole time, on the one hand, clearly this is a look at us, look at what we're doing, right? Look at our bravery. We're, we're, we're getting in Chelsea Clinton's face. We'll show her. There's this performative aspect of it. Um, and and you know, I think fairly blatantly, they're like, you know, oh, by the way, here's our fundraiser. <laughs> please, please contribute to us for this great act of bravery of getting in the face of a pregnant woman at a vigil. Um, but also with this is the argument that, you know, somehow uh, criticizing Congresswoman Omar contributed to Islamophobia Ergo, Chelsea Clinton is by the transitive property responsible for the mosque massacre. This is basically an attempt to declare that any criticism of Congresswoman Omar is ipso facto Islamophobia and is ipso facto something to be criticized and denounced and ultimately not permitted. Now, this is crazy talk. And, you know, every now and then, Greg, I get up on my high horse and I talk about how I think a lot of people we're dealing with in politics are not sane. And it's not like, ah, oh, you know, those people, man, those guys have crazy beliefs. No, I really think. If you run around and you believe that Chelsea Clinton has blood on her hands because of a tweet a month ago over a mask, like you're, you're ready for Infowars. Right? This is not all that different than a crazy belief of, you know, uh, well, because you did this and that person did that and that person did that by the transitive property and because of the ricochet, you're because of this terrible massacre that happened over there. And what it really is, is we see this thing interesting because we're talking about the uh, gun violence in our preceding martini. When something terrible happens, a school shooting, a workplace shooting or something like that, you see people jump onto Twitter and they want to say, you have blood on your hands. Now, do they logically believe that? I'm not so sure. But I think what it is is that, look, you disagree with me and you're a horrible person because you disagree with me. And it makes me feel good to loudly and publicly proclaim that you're a terrible person and ultimately responsible for violence because you have the audacity to disagree with me. Now, there's one last kind of interesting wrinkle to this, Greg, which is that I went to you see what the reaction was to these uh, two nutty NYU students on Twitter. Uh, what was the reaction to their piece on BuzzFeed? What was the reaction on other places like Jezebel and Salon? These are these are not <laughs> these are pretty darn left wing sites. And the interesting thing, Greg, was that in the comment section. The general sense was, boy, these two NYU students are a bunch of idiots. Or, wow, I can't stand Chelsea Clinton, but that's completely out of line. You shouldn't treat her like that. Or, no, this is a nonsense argument. Or, oh, we've got idiots on our side, too. It was kind of reassuring. It was kind of this weird sense of, okay, so the progressive grassroots isn't backing the two NYU students. And for all the other disagreements we might have with those folks, they thought these two were were as nutty as anybody else. What I then think is really weird about this, Greg, is that because of that, you th- this is a free shot. Every, all across the aisle, there's a broad consensus. These two NYU students uh, were a bunch of, bunch of idiots for, for confronting Chelsea like that. They ended up not, but we, the only person who came out and said, don't do that, was Bill de Blasio. So in light of that, Greg, you and I are not going to make fun of uh, him for killing a groundhog for like 24 hours. So that's, we always talk about our molecule of respect. That's our one little bit of throw. You know, hey, good job, Mr. Mayor. I'll... I'll I'll take it easy on you for a little bit. Um, but beyond that, the other Democrats are just kind of averting their eyes and not talking about this, at least as far as I've, se- I've seen so far. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting. I think the Democratic office holders think the progressive grassroots are with the NYU students. But at least, you know, my cursory examination of the comments section, they're not. 
bless you for digging into the comment sections. Man, that is hazard pay of the highest order. So I hope. Uh, yeah, they say it's like opening up the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, you know, <laughs> Don't take look. one look and your head blows up. Man, crazy way to start the week. We'll do it again tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.